Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Acts 2.42. And uh, we are our second week into what uh, is planned to be a five-week series um, that is a Sunday series review. I'm not sure if there's series out there that are reviews on past series, but we might have made that up. I don't know. Um, about last January 2013, we uh, having some light issues somewhere <laughs> somehow, and it's not Cheryl doing it. Just in case you're wondering, it's the Holy Spirit. The Lord is telling me that someone over on this end of the room. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so January 2000. Oh, is Adam leaning against the thing? <laughs> oh, silly guy. Uh, it's really hard to preach a sermon when that stuff's going on, you know what I mean? <laughs> you there. Okay. Um, 2013, January, we did a 14-week series called His Church, uh, where we examined the doctrine of the church. It's also called ecclesiology, uh, the studying of the church, looking at the scriptural truths of what Jesus desires his church to be. 14 weeks of diving into who and what is the church. How valuable is the church? Should we value the church? What are the functions, the purposes, the, the missions, the ministries, the beliefs of the church and the scripture? Uh, what do we see them to be? And so after that 14 weeks, we moved on into uh, walking through the word, uh, teaching 1 Corinthians and uh, part of that was because we had just finished Romans, and so like as we're walking through the word, we went into 1 Corinthians, but also it felt the Lord say, hey, I want to affirm the His church truths through the church of the Corinthians. And we're going to see those things acted out and lived out in the life of Corinth, um, the Corinthian church there. And so as we uh, finished up 36 weeks of studying 1 Corinthians, uh, just felt like we were to do a review of the book of 1 Corinthians, but even go farther back and look at uh, the doctrine of the church and how we see those truths affirmed in 1 Corinthians. So um, basically we're going to tackle every week two of the uh, studies from his church and then have that apply to our local body here, kind of a play on his church. It's this church here today. So in our series, we pray that Jesus will remind us, or maybe even teach us for the first time, if you're new here, about the nature of the church. And the reason we are so committed to the church here at Calvary Chapel is because he is so committed to his church. And the reason we find our church to be so valuable is because Jesus finds the local body to be so valuable. He purchased it with his own blood. The word church in the New Testament never refers to a building or a place. It always refers to people. And either that's the universal church and all the people, the total number of believers who have ever lived ever, or maybe it refers to the local congregation of those believers like Calvary Chapel of Crook County or First Baptist Church of Prineville or the Ascent, you know, something local, a, a fellowship. Um, but in the New Testament, the word church is also to used to refer to that local group, that local body of believers. Uh, fresh definition of the church for us this morning from John Piper would be, I would define a local church like this. A local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly to worship God through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted from the word of God, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. Uh, to kind of break that down in an informal fashion, we would say that the, the church exists for upreach, inreach, and outreach. All right, so... Upreach, that is worshiping the Lord. Everything we do is to glorify God, to exalt his majesty among ourselves and among those around us and among even the nations and even the heavenly hosts. We want to make much of our creator and ascribe greatness to him. Um, but then also we have the, the purpose of inreach, that the local church is existence for 
uh, its existence is for taking care of one another, teaching one another, discipling one another, growing up as a as a family together, uh, correcting one another and encouraging one another and exhorting one another and providing for one another. And it just goes on and on and on. And we're going to see that uh, even more over the next few weeks. And then finally, the local church exists for outreach, for reaching out to our community and our region and our nation and the world and the farthest parts of the world. So, uh, and of course, inreach and outreach all comes back to upreach. It's all to worship God for the glory of God. So you're going to probably see me doing that a lot, like upreach, inreach, outreach. You guys can get that down. It's going to be next, like dance moves. Okay. I don't know. So last week, we looked at the purpose of the church and that it is existence is for the glory of God. The church's mission is to glorify God and worship him for his excellencies, for his virtues, for his saving work. And then this week, we merge into the second purpose of the church, that in-reach. Of course, in-reach and outreach are all for that final goal of upreach. If we allow the New Testament to just speak for itself, it becomes immediately obvious that the majority of the New Testament and what it has to say about the church is not in its universal context, but it's in its local, specific, particular gathering of Christians, i.e. Primeville, i.e. the church in Redmond. And to even bring it down even more biblically and even more microscopic, that local church, Calvary Chapel, or that local church, you know, you can name it Eastside or whatnot. Uh, even the occurrences of the word church in the New Testament reveal this to us. Of the 110 times ecclesia is used in the New Testament, 90 of those 110 are used in clear reference to local congregations. Most of the New Testament books have been written to, New Test or to local congregations. Three others of the books have been written to individuals who'd been given leadership over local churches. A historical record that's contained in the book of Acts clearly sets forth the establishment of local churches. Uh, one definition, if I could give it to you, is a local church is a group of Christians who have intentionally united together for the expressed purpose of exercising New Testament Christianity for the glory of God on behalf of one another and the world. You guys getting it? No, not at all. Okay, that's, that's okay. Um, the point of all of this is to say that you cannot experience the Christianity of the New Testament by simply claiming to be a member of the universal church. The full flower of the Christian experience is realized only in the context of the local community of faith. Mark Deaver writes, from the earliest of times, local Christian churches were congregations of specific, identifiable people. God has always intended for a sharp, bright line to distinguish those who trust in him from those who do not. The lives of Christians together display visibly the gospel they preach audibly. And that's what I love about going to the park next, next week is we're going to be out. There's no walls. People are driving by like, what's going on? And they see us worshiping God and upreach and then loving on each other and serving each other and just helping people with stuff and being there with each other and weeping together and rejoicing together, just loving on each other, experiencing body life together. And then they're going to see us uh, reaching out as people come in who they don't know. And they're like, can I get a pulled pork sandwich even though I don't know anybody here? And we're like, come on in, buddy. You know, and we preach the gospel to them. That local, even gathering in the park next Sunday is going to exist for upreach, inreach, and outreach. It displays visibly the gospel that we proclaim audibly. One contemporary writer expressed it in this fashion. Is it possible to have a vibrant spiritual life and successfully nurture our relationship with God apart from a local church? Is it just conventional wisdom that tells us we must be a part of one? Is it possible to move closer to God and farther away from the church? 
Are there lots of alternatives to the church when it comes to our spiritual growth? Are those who forsake all church involvement truly blameless for that choice? The answer to all these questions, according to scripture, is a resounding no. Far from being one of the many options for the Christian, the church is the primary means through which God accomplishes his plan for the world. It is his ordained instruments for calling the lost to himself, and it is the context in which he sanctified those who are born into his family. Therefore, God expects and even demands a commitment to the church from everyone who claims to know him. And for anyone who has a contention with those kind of words, the burden of proof is solely upon you. Because the New Testament never hints at a thriving, influential kind of Christian experience apart from the accountable fellowship through other Christians in the local body context. A historical argument would be John Calvin, one of the reformers, who writes that the Lord esteems the communion of his church so highly that he counts as traitor an apostate from Christianity, that is someone who has fallen away from the faith, anyone who arrogantly leaves any Christian society, provided it cherishes the true ministry of the word and sacraments. If all we did were to look at our Protestant forebearers and Reformed theologians who came out of the Catholic, Roman Catholic movement, we would see that this Tragic nonsense of church hopping and church shopping would radically come to an end and people would commit to a family. Essentially, Calvin said, where the word of God is declared faithfully and the sacraments, baptism and communion are administered properly, you stay there. And so in our church series, we asked a question that was very specific so that there was no room for misinterpretation. It was very focused because it's for a group of people, a specific group of people. It's answerable if you look in the scriptures. And it's a question for people, maybe it's for you in this room, if you meet two criteria, okay? The first criteria is, are you born again? Are you a Christian? Have you been transferred from the kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of light? Have you been regenerated, given a new heart that is no longer a heart of stone, but it's a heart that beats and knows God? Are you a Christian today? Secondly, do you consider Calvary Chapel of Crook County to be your home church? You might say, do you consider yourself to be a member here? Uh, when you're out of town and someone says, hey, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? You say, yeah, I go to Calvary Chapel in Prineville, okay? So if you're a born-again Christian and Calvary Chapel's your church, I've got a very specific, pointed, answerable, biblically-based question for you, and here it is. What are your obligations to this local congregation? What are your obligations to this local congregation? We're going to ask this question throughout the next uh, three weeks after this as well. What are your responsibilities as you belong to and as you are a member of this church? What is your duty to the other Christians around them, around you? These are very prayed over words. These are very studied words. Obligation, responsibility, duty. What are yours to this church? It's perhaps an offensive question in this day and age as the church is marked by a consumer mentality where Christians openly and regularly church shop. Maybe they are seekers who've never stayed and gotten a foundation. A question directly and personal. Charles Jefferson, in a book that I read called The Building of the Church, it's lectures that he spoke before Yale Divinity University in uh, 1910. He asks in this book, or he says in this book, many a sermon must be preached on the duties which Christians owe to one another. And so it's good a couple years later to come back and just go, what are the duties that we owe one another? 
Now, this is not to be brought into legalism. I'm not preaching works-based righteousness, all right? But as we said last week, the French have the saying, nobility obligates, and I asked Fred about it. It's a real saying, and he taught me that it's noblesse oblige. Eh, eh, eh. <laughs> no, the French don't do that. He also said the French don't do that. And I go, okay. Uh, <laughs> nobility obligates. What that means is when we consider what the God of the universe has, has done to take us out of a state of being children of wrath who were enmity with God, at war with God, in rebellion against God, as we de-godded him, cast him off of his throne in our hearts, and lifted up other created things to fill his place. He pursued us, sacrificed himself to forgive us, and to purchase us out of the slavery of sin and of death. And he's called us and beckoned us by his loving, wooing spirit that if anyone would simply rest in him, they would not perish in the hell that that would be justly deserved by them, but they would have eternal life and they would be adopted into his family and be given an inheritance from God, undefiled and incorruptible, and they would be given a mission possible by by the God of the heavens to go out and represent him to the rest of creation. That means that we are noble, all right? We've been bought at a price. Therefore, we ought to glorify God in our bodies. We have a duty. We have a responsibility. We have obligation as Christians, but they are privileges. They are things that we get to do, not things that we have to do. And many a sermon must be preached on the duties that Christians owe to one another, So what is your obligation to this local church? Are you obliged to do anything? And if you like country western shows, then the word obliged is like familiar in your vocabulary. Much obliged, ma'am. Right? Are we obliged to do anything in this church? That means are we legally or morally bound to an action or a course of action in the same way that doctors are obliged by law to keep patients alive while there is still a chance of recovery. Something that we see in the scriptures that we are reminded of from our His Church series is that I am obligated to be an active part of the regular assembly of this local body. I have a duty to be here when things are going on. John Piper says there must be a regular assembling. A group of people who only come together, say, once a year could not rightly be called a local church because there are essential activities of the church which lose their meaning when not done corporately. And we're going to look at those essential activities over the next few Weeks. A man named Paul Minier has a classic work called Images of the Church, excuse me, in the New Testament. And he points to 96 different pictures of the church in the New Testament. And let me give you a few of them and see if you hear any that, that refer to us being corporate in nature. We as the church are a flock. Now, is a flock one sheep? <laughs> Come to my house, I'll show you my flock. Dude, there's one sheep there. That's not a flock. Okay. Uh, A flock is many sheep, right? More than one, at least. 4-H days, I don't really remember much, but we are a body that has many members, all right? So we are the body of Christ, one body, many members, you know, all right? Jesus is the head of this body, and we are each a functioning part of it. And if one of the members is missing, then we are deformed and we can't function properly. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. What do you call a vine with like one branch? I don't even know what. Oh, you you went to horticulture. What's it called? Is that really something? A stub? (laughs) It's very technical. Horticulture language that you had to go to OSU to understand that stuff. We are a building. We are a family. We are a people. We are the bride of Christ. We are a temple that is made up of living stones. 
And Charles Jefferson says, the living stones have not abiding life unless built into the walls of the growing temple. So a temple with one stone for a wall is like windscreen at best or something. I don't know. But, but you get a lot of those stones and it makes up one temple. We are the salt of the earth. We are the letter from Christ. One of three big texts for us today is found in Acts 2.42. So if you can flip over there. We're going to go through the text, and we have a prescription for, uh, we have a description that is a good prescription, I should say, for the church today. This is right after, this is the day of Pentecost, and, and Peter had just preached the gospel to the Jews, and he had explained to them that this is what Joel had prophesied of that would happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out after the Messiah comes, and you took the Messiah, and you killed him. But he wouldn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Look at all these prophecies. And he preached the gospel to the Jews. And they were cut to the heart. They were convicted that they had killed the Messiah. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And he says, you must repent. You must repent. And, and it says 3,000 people that day repented and came to the Lord. And times of refreshing came and flowed from the, from the throne of God that day. And so right after, so there's about 3,120 Christians in the church. And we, it was, we read our text today. And those 3,120 continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who were believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and, good and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we have a snapshot of a Snapchat. Did I say Snapchat? It is an app on the phones these days, but snapshots of the early church and their daily life. And these are principles that shape the way we do things at church. We see that there was body life and there was body love. There was in reach, there was gathering, there was stuff happening, there was loving one another. They would continue steadfastly in gathering. They were together as they believed. They continued daily in the temple in one accord. In the historical books, the non-Christian Roman official Pliny wrote to Emperor Trajan about 112 AD, and he referred to the fact that Christians met regularly before daybreak on an appointed day. The Didache, which is an early 2nd century document believed to be kind of a instructions for how to conduct a, a church and conduct worship services, uh, believed to be passed on by the apostles. Uh, in the Didache, uh, Christians were exhorted, on the Lord's day, assemble. Justin Martyr, writing in the middle of the 2nd century, described a common assembly on the first day of each week in which Christians came together for reading scripture, for preaching, for prayer, and for collecting an offering. Hippolytus, in the early 3rd century, referred to God's people assembling each Lord's day. So what's the vision? What's the agenda? We at Calvary Chapel want to model this church after the early church in the book of Acts. One man said, when the church was all he wanted it to be, then he did all he wanted to do. And we've got big vision for the dreams of God here, don't we? We just, we just feel the dreams of God for, for Nepal and for the world, and God's moving our church towards missions, and yet we don't want to neglect the weighty matters of corporate fellowship in the local body. And it's only when we are all that God wants us to be here that we're going to be able to be effective over there. All right? We've got to have a healthy church here before we can plant healthy churches elsewhere. And so here we see that 
It's the Lord's church. He will build it. He bought it with his own precious blood. That gives it great value here. His, it's, his love for it goes beyond whether or not we like people in it. <laughs> and so he grows us to love one another. And then we recognize that it's for the glory of God. And we recognize that we have a duty to gather together as the early church did. Verse 42 says, they continued steadfastly. Now just hearing that, would you say that Rory Rogers, or insert your name there, or your family, like we continue steadfastly in the assembling of ourselves together with Calvary Chapel. That's if you're born again and if you consider this your church, okay? We continue, our family, the Rogers, continue steadfastly. Let me just break it down a little bit. The word steadfast means to be earnest towards, to persevere, to be constantly diligent, to attend assiduously all the exercises, to adhere closely with, to attend continually, and to continue. Does that describe you, your family, your home, and your relationship to this local church? Maybe you read the American Standard where it says they devoted themselves continually and they continue steadfastly. We see that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. That means that the word of God was preached, it was expounded upon. Truth that was passed down from the apostles, as Ephesians calls it, the foundation uh, is what we study. We study the truth of the word of God that is profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for training and equipping and instructing. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. That's the word koinonia, which also means communion or community. So does that speak to you as your family or as you as an individual? I continue steadfastly and adhere to the community or the sharing is another way to translate it. We share at this church, share our hearts, share our emotions, share our resources, share our money, share our time. I share with the people here. We are in one accord. I like what Matthew Henry, the 15th century Puritan preacher, put. he said, they took all occasions to meet. Wherever you saw one disciple, you would see more like birds of a feather. And that kind of, that reminds, you know, like, are we having a New Year's Eve celebration? Are we having a 4th of July celebration? Are we having a midweek? Are we having a mid-midweek? Are we going to have a quarter every week? Or quarter, quarter, third week? You know, how much can we get together? I like that the 15th century preacher said birds of a feather. You know, I was like, birds of a feather flock together, right? That's the local church. We're like birds of a feather. When I was originally teaching this series, I was, an, I was at an event with a family who often was absent from church gatherings. And at this point, they'd been truant for many months. When a faithful church sister asked the wife of the absent family, where have you been? We've missed you. I leaned in, curious to what the response would be, where the absentee wife replied, ah, oh, we're just a bunch of hermits. My friends, Jesus has not saved us so that we can be hermits. The New Testament model of Christians is not a model of inwardly, selfishly focused loners. That is not what he has saved us to. He has saved us to the same walk of the early church where they and we would have fellowship with Christ, Jew, Greek, men, women, none of it mattered. When they gathered together, the first thing they realized was that they had Jesus. And of course, any community feels awkward when you first come into it. Just like the first day of school, you go in, and if you were like me, you were kind of like this, sitting in the chair, like, you know. I remember fourth grade, this kid ended up being one of my really good friends. And like a month after I moved to Corvallis, he goes, you know, when you first came in here, I thought you were a total dork. But then I realized you were actually a pretty cool guy. I'm like, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Then we realized that we had a lot in common and we became pals, friends. What about when we realize we have something in common, the man, Jesus Christ. And scripturally, we have fellowship and we share in fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, a future hope, the gospel, suffering, our abilities, our giftings, our needs. 
Erickson's theology book says Christianity is a corporate matter and the Christian life can be fully realized only in relationship to others. The most fundamental duty Christians have in relationship to the congregation is the regular duty to attend gatherings of the congregation. Erickson's theology book. Rory's not trying to put some kind of trip on you. We're studying the doctrine of the church where we gather together to study the scriptures, to fellowship, to share in things, to break bread and have the Lord's Supper and have love feasts and eat. We fast and we feast in this local body. Matthew Henry wrote that the Lord's Supper is a sermon to the eye. As we together, we remember the death of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for us. They continued steadfastly and regularly in prayer. The church was a praying community. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book says, if we were really convinced that prayer changes the way that God acts and that God does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as scripture repeatedly states he does, then he would pray much more than we do, or we would pray much more than we do. If we do not pray, if we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe prayer accomplishes much at all. And so we want to be that praying church that stays God-centered, Christ-centered. And so here's a quick shameless plug that the Pulse prayer meeting has morphed and merged together with Wednesday night gatherings to teach the word and to worship, to pray for one another, to pray for our community, and then to intercede for the nations. This week we will be interceding specifically for Antigua that we watched about today. We also see in our Acts 2 passage that they continued daily in verse 46, that continued daily with one accord in the temple. Does that describe you? There's a continual daily stuff. Maybe you're not down here in the building every day, but man, you are just, you're, you're just calling people. You're at people's houses and you're emailing people and you're commenting on Facebook and just, you were part of the body, maybe even from not here at the temple, if you will. Continuing daily, I like how Spurgeon refers to the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, that it was like a beehive of activity. You know, it's kind of cool to like hand out keys to people. And I have numbered keys that I'm like, okay, you're number 18, you know, and I give it away. And it's like, why am I giving them a key? Because they're going to come down here and they want to be a part of stuff down here. And they want to serve and clean and minister and worship the Lord. The early church was praising God, and it says in verse 47 that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You need to note in that verse, as John Stott, this late Scottish preacher, he died in like 2011, I think, he said, God didn't add them to the church without saving them, nor did he save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership went together. They still do. So if you are born again, the Lord will add you to the church. All right? To be saved, you are added to the church. We're going to come back to this duty, obligation of gathering and assembling together. But in our next text of Hebrews 10, 19 through 25... Right before there's this instruction to assemble, he gives us another duty that we have, the author of Hebrews. So Hebrews 10, 19. And we're going to camp out in 24 and 25, but let me set it up just a second. I want you guys to realize that in 24 and 25, we are given what are called moral imperatives. That means it is necessary that we've got to do something. You must do something, okay? And we are told in verse 24 that we must consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's our second duty, our second obligation of the morning is that we must consider one another and love one another, all right? We also are told in verse 25 that we should not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. So we need to be gathering. 
Now, I could get up here and just preach a message like, you guys better go to church, and you guys better just be nice to each other and think about each other. You're dismissed, all right? But what I would have just done is put the law upon you, given you stuff to do in the same way that the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. What the gospel does is it moves us and propels us and motivates us towards action based on love, based on responding to the wonderful things that God has done. And so I don't want to just start at verse 24 and 25 when we can go back to verse 19 and see the motivation behind any Christian work at all. And so we see, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so we have these, what are called redemptive indicatives, or indications that we've been redeemed. Okay, that's how I have to think of it. <laughs> we have these things that tell us that we have been brought near, that we have unlimited access to God in verse 19. Verse 21, that we have advocacy with God, that he is our priest, he is our advocates, that we have a salvation that's grounded in Jesus as our representative in heaven, and he saves all those who come to him. So how should we respond to this redemptive indicative? Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us, notice it's all plural, hold fast the confession. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Or the NASB says, let us stimulate one another, provoking one another, inciting and spurring one another on towards love and towards good works. Colin Brown refers to it as affectionate incitement. That means we are loving each other so much that we love each other enough to spur one another on to do all that God has called us to do. I like that, affectionate incitement. We're to consider one another, to give careful consideration about who's around me, what's going on in their lives. I'm concerned about them. I have my mind fixed on you guys as I come together on this Sunday morning contemplating with just a continual consideration the character of my brother and the wants of my sister so that I can help them and counsel them and pray for them so that I can stir them up and spur them on. To what end? Towards the end of love and towards the end of good works. It's the responsibility of all Christians. It's the ministry of you here today, if you consider yourself a Christian, you've been born again, and if this is your home church, it's not a ministry for some subgroup of the church or the naturally extroverted people with wacky personalities. No, it's for you today to be considerate of the people around you, what's going on in their lives. As Peter tells us, since you've purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit... In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So we've been set apart by the Spirit of God. And since that's happened, love one another with a pure heart. Let's, hear, let's see if you can catch this. 1 John 4.11, see if you can catch the redemptive indicative that tells us we've been saved and the moral imperative that tells us to do something, okay? It's a simple one. Beloved, if God so loved us, let us love one another. The gospel, God has loved us. What do we do out of that? We love one another. It's a simple one. We bear our eternal life with duties to the Christians around us. Jesus never came to save you 
as an individual. Though we celebrated Independence Day, we don't celebrate that when we become Christians. We celebrate freedom from sin. He, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. You know, uh, there's so much freedom in Christ. It was a 4th of July study we did last year. But we do not become independent. All right? We are bought and paid for and brought into a family, into a body, into a flock. And in that, we're to consider one another. One commentator says it. There's a reference here to a conscientious care and circumspection over the spiritual estate and welfare of other Christians. This means that no longer do we come to Calvary Chapel on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night selfishly, what can I get out of this? I hope it meets my every whim and every fancy and tickles this bone and that bone and just makes me feel all whoo inside. I hope this about myself and me, this, that. I hope someone talks to me. I hope this guy talks to me. I hope I get some time with this person. Me, 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 okay? Rather, it takes us to be focused towards the other people around us. What are their hurts? What are they struggling with right now? Thinking of the single moms in the place and what they go through on a daily basis as they got their kids ready to come here or the single dads. Thinking of the hurting marriages, thinking of the people with diseases and cancers and struggles and sin issues. People that, man, when we come, we're singing a song and the Lord brings them to my mind. So I pray for them. And as Ephesians chapter 5 says, I will uh, sing to them with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and exhorting them to fix their eyes upon Jesus, realizing there are men without jobs, parents that are overwhelmed with guilt that goes alongside of having a wayward child, chronic illnesses and pain that are happening, depression that's taking place. So instead of saying, what am I going to get out of this or how is this going to benefit me? I am considerate of those around me and how I can build them up towards loving Jesus more, having a fervent, passionate walk with God and serving and using their gifts with good works for the glory of God. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 8 through 13. So Colossians chapter 3, we see this duty and obligation to love one another and to consider one another. We're going to read this passage, and I want you to try to pick out, as you read, try to pick out the gospel story, okay? The good news of the gospel. And then see how Paul moves us from the gospel to practical outworking in our life, okay? So things that we need to do because of the the great things that God's done for us. If then you were raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And so we have Paul writing to the church in Colossae, telling them the gospel that they've been raised with Christ, that Uh, they're sitting at the right hand of Christ, that the old man is dead and the new man is, um, is alive in Christ. And one day we will appear with that risen Jesus in glory. And because of all that, put to death in the church, Colossae, put to death those members of sexual immorality and uncleanness and passion, evil desire, and the list that goes on, put off All these things like anger and wrath and malice, blasphemy, filthy language that take place within the church. Don't lie to one another. 
because of the gospel, don't lie to one another. Because you've been chosen by God to walk in his truth, verse 12, because you're loved, put on these good things. Do these good things. Be tenderly merciful to one another. And this is where it just rubber meets the road, guys, because as we are a church that gathers together and are considerate of one another, we are going to offend one another. We are going to rub one another the wrong way. We are going to fail one another. But the beauty of the gospel and why it's made visible through us being together is that just as Jesus has forgiven us and just as Jesus was tenderly merciful, so are we to one another because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we forgive. And so we are merciful. And so we bear a long time with each other. Even when I'm driving you crazy, you bear with me because Jesus is bore with you. We forgive one another. And even if we've got a complaint about one another, we just forgive the person of that. Why? Because of the gospel. Because Jesus has done that for you. And above it all, we put on love. This speaks of like an outer garment that just wraps up everything else. As we've put on all these other things, we put on this outer cloak, kind of the seal the deal thing of love. So needed within the church. As people get together, we are going to offend, we are going to hurt, we're going to gossip, we're going to slight one another, we're going to sin against one another. We're going to be biblical in the way we confront that sin with the heart of gaining the brother. We're going to re repent and reconcile and then offend each other again and confront and work through it and humble ourselves and reconcile again. It's the gospel made visible. Just write in your notes, 1 John 3, 10 through 16. John has much to say on this loving matter within the church. He even says in 1 John 4, 20, there's a very concept of if you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. If you don't have a consideration for the people around you that are brothers and sisters, you're a liar. The gospel obligates us to be our brother's keeper. Do you remember when Cain was asked by God, you know, where's your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. And so we have the duty, the responsibility to consider one another and to be loving towards one another as we gather together. The ministry of considering one another necessitates constant, consistent togetherness. And so we come back to Hebrews 10. It'll be our last passage of the morning in verse 25, where it says that we are not to forsake, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Why is it important that believers stay together in the church? It's because that is where we love other believers, which is a mark of a true Christian, according to Jesus. This ministry of provoking one another towards love and good work tells us we need to speak up as we're together by exhorting one another, urging and encouraging and spurring one another on, pushing and insisting on things that are biblical. With the gospel of the return of Jesus we're to do it even more, so much more as you see the day approaching. And so we see that there's a not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That is a duty that we have, that we would not forsake, or ESV says not neglecting, NIV says not giving up the assembling of ourselves or the meeting of ourselves together. Basic Christianity says that there must be a regular gathering. Ignatius, an early church father, says, when you frequently and in numbers meet together, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness in the faith. Isn't that amazing? As we come together and worship and get into the scriptures and share and exhort and provoke one another to love and good works, his mischief as the devil is neutralized by our like-mindedness in the faith. You see, we've been designed for this community. First of all, by design, do you remember in the creation when the father said, it is not good that man should be alone? 
Let me create for him a helpmeet comparable to him. That isn't only the, the wife need that was there, but the need for fellowship and companionship. Proverbs 18.1 says that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desires and rages against all wise judgment. God has not saved us to be isolated individuals, but to be part of a community. And we see that even in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are friends. They are pals, the three in one. And Jesus even said in John 17, Oh Lord, that the disciples would be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they would be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Don't forsake that community. The regular gathering together as is the manner of some or the habit of some. How crazy that this letter to the Hebrews was written in about 67 AD and already there was a defecting in the ranks of Christians. Jesus hadn't even been gone for 30 years or 40 years. And people are already like, I'm good. I don't really need this whole like church thing that's Jesus' church and he will build the church and all the things that are you know, New Testament that need to be taking place as we're together. Don't need it. Well, perhaps that was for some reasons like persecution. Maybe they thought, man, if the Romans catch us assembled and meeting together, they're going to cut our heads off or crucify us. So I think it's just better if we stay home today, honey. You got to give that guy some props. Like, okay, yeah, maybe you were going to get killed. Might have been a good reason to be gone. Others were being pressured and ostracized by their Jewish community and intimidated by large Jewish synagogues. Some people may have had business engagements. Others were simply lazy. All those things were contributing to the problem of people neglecting the assembling of themselves together regularly. But none of those reasons are given to us in the text. And do you know why? Because at the end of the day, none of those reasons justify the neglect of the scheduled meetings of the church. In the end, they all speak to a failure to appreciate the call of God upon our lives to minister to one another and to be part of this thing called the church. The purpose of effectually inciting one another towards love and good works. As we hear a message like this, some of the first responses out of our hearts are, Rory, you're being a little intense. You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. You're wrong. You don't need to go to church to become a Christian. You do need to go to church and be part of a church to experience all that the New Testament says a church is to be. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Am I right? Amen. We're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the faith that saves is not alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. As James tells us, it will be shown by its works. We will respond to the nobility that God has given us through these obligations of things that we get to do, including our gathering together and our incitement of one another towards love and good work. I'm not talking about someone whose job dictates if they can be in fellowship on a Sunday because we don't have a Sabbath legislation of the new covenant. The wrong question would be to ask, do I have to show up to church? Because it reveals something that's wrong in us and a heart issue. The issue is not, is it right for a Christian to work on Sundays the issue is, is it the longing of your heart to be with the saints when they meet? And will you make being with the saints one of the highest priorities of your life? I'm currently reading the autobiography of a missionary named John Patton from Scotland. In the 1850s, he went from Scotland down over by Australia to some islands called the New Hebrides Islands. These islands were full of cannibalistic headhunters, heathens, they call them. And the missionaries that went from Scotland about 30 years before John Patton went down there, 
got into the rowboat off the big ship, rowed their stuff to shore, took all the crates and put them on shore, had all their things there. They're going to go minister the gospel to the New Hebrides and the ship, you know, sailors get back in the boat and row back to the main boat. And as they're in the rowboat, going back to the main ship, the cannibals come out of the jungles, spear these Scottish people, cut them up, roast them up on the fire and begin eating them in front of the ship as it sails back to Scotland. <laughs> Couldn't get out of there fast enough. They bring that word back to Scotland and John Patton had been sensing the urge of his heart to go and minister to these people. One of the, the principal godly men in his church that John just loved said, John, just stay here and pastor here. We need you here. Don't go there. John, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And John said very politely, he said, sir, I'm estimating that you too will soon find the grave and that worms will soon be devouring your flesh. So whether or not my flesh is devoured by worms or by cannibals, it doesn't matter. I will be spent taking the gospel to the unknown people groups. And so he went and his biography is like super exciting, all right? Crazy stuff goes on in the New Hebrides. Well, John Patton writes in his autobiography concerning his growing up and his church life and how their family would regularly gather together. He was this missionary to the cannibal heathens on these islands, and he wrote of his childhood with 10 other siblings growing up in Scotland, where he writes, and we'll have the worship team come up. I did this last time. They might not be ready for it, though. There's Johnny scratching his head. <laughs> Here's what he writes in his autobiography. Our place of worship was the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Dumfries. Dumfries was four miles fully from our home. But the tradition is that during all these 40 years, my father was only thrice prevented from attending the worship of God. Once by snow, so deep that he was baffled and had to return. Once by ice on the road, so dangerous that he was forced to crawl back up to the Rukenbrae on his hands and knees after having descended it so far with many falls. And once by the terrible outbreak of cholera at Dumfries. Each of us, from very early days, considered it no penalty, but a great joy to go with our Father to the church. Oh, I can remember those happy Sabbath evenings. No blinds down and shutters up to keep out the sun, as some scandalously affirm, but a holy, happy, entirely human day for a Christian father, mother, and children to spend. He writes, there were 11 of us brought up in a home, and never once did one of the 11, boy or girl, man or woman, has it ever been heard or ever will be heard saying that Sabbath was dull and wearisome for us or suggesting that we have heard or seen any other, a little Scottish stuff here going on. He says, God help the homes where these things are done by force and not by love. 11 kids, dad misses three Sundays in 40 years. And two of those times he tried to make it, but snow and ice kept him. And one of the times was cholera outbreak in the whole nation. Is that something that reflects our current culture and feel for the necess necessary gathering of the saints on the Lord's day? And for 11 kids to say, man, all Sabbath, we would, we would go to church, we'd walk home, that's eight miles round trip. We'd read the catechism and we'd study the scriptures and dad would give us the proof text from the scriptures till the sun went down. And not one of us 11 ever thought it was weary or toilsome. We loved it. But he said, God help the home that does it out of legal, legalness and not out of love. That does it out of legality and not out of a response for what Jesus has done for us. I pray that the Lord would just continue by his spirit to change the culture of our church, of our men and women and families, how we view these days of gathering, that it would be priority for us, that it would take an awful lot to get us not to be here on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or whatever time we're together. 
That we would be, as the Metropolitan Tabernacle, a buzz of activity every day of the week. Why don't we stand? And as we stand, I just want to review, just kind of scan over some of the things I was remembering from our First Corinthians teaching. As we spent 36 weeks, there were times when this body life came up to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a church that gathered, but there were divisions and factions that would take place among them that were, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, evidence of carnality. And maybe you would just close your eyes right now and just let the Lord just speak over you. Wherever there were divisions or factions, Paul says, it's because there's carnal fleshiness getting in the way. And maybe you here today are someone that just constantly allows divisions and just divisiveness or maybe even outward external things and activities to divide you and take you away from these gatherings, sometimes months at a time. And Paul just says, you need to know that wherever there's, if it's clickiness or if it's factions, that's, that's the flesh. That's not of the spirit. That needs to be repented of. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul speaks of our work and our reward and that we are not there yet. We haven't arrived. We're not in heaven. The Corinthians thought they'd arrived. And so any type of commitment or any type of uh, suffering seemed just super radical, something not to be touched. But Paul spoke to them that we have an expectation for involvement and an expectation of suffering. 1 Corinthians 7, we had a, a message on the eternal perspectives of family. That we're to be worshiping Jesus as a family, not to be worshiping at the shrines of our family. How many people are absent from the word of God because of a commitment to family? Rearranging breakfast time, dinner time to accommodate sports practices, music lessons, dance. Anything and everything that would come up to further your children, you will sacrifice to make that happen. But when it comes to body life and body love, no sacrifice is made. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see the use of verbal gifts such as tongues and prophecy and exhortations and that they take place in the corporate gathering and in the local church assembly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that church discipline is to take place as we gather together in the name of the Lord. As we see there's a duty in our lives to have considerate love for one another, we see that the Corinthians were rebuked for failing in that area as they would regularly sue each other, that they would choose their freedoms and their liberties over love for one another. There was no consideration of the consciences of those around them. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that the way they used their spiritual gifts, they were to be done in love and in consideration says that in chapter 14 as well. And so I wrote down just in my office last night, and I just really prayed that this, what I read to you, will be convicting if the Lord wants to convict you, that he would spur you on, that there would be no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus today. But I wrote, how are we who claim to be Christians and members of Calvary Chapel of Crook County doing with our assembling together and with our consideration of one another in love and good works. The pros are that there are faithful people who come regularly to hear the word and to serve and to assemble and to worship. If they miss, I am so encouraged to hear they faithfully listen to the sermon online and practice what is taught, even if it means starting a week-long fast the next day. What an encouragement turnout we had at our Wednesday night gathering and at the missions workshop we put on this month. 
But perhaps the con and the word of exhortation would be that there are still a large number of those who claim to be born-again believers and that they are members of our church who regularly miss our Sunday gatherings at the drop of a hat for any reason at all. If anything else comes up, that will be a reason not to fellowship, and we are taking it. So much so that one man who claimed that Calvary Chapel was his church for years was unaware that one of our elders, who is on the worship team every Sunday, that he even went to this church. Large numbers, struggling to put a number on it, but I'd say 225 out of 300 of us would not even consider being part of a midweek gathering, a Wednesday night, a core group, a 242 home group, the youth group, or equipped school of ministry. They would say, it's just not in the cards. It's not going to happen. And the Lord would say, that is a sign of disease in your heart and needs to be repented of. While one can hang around and see the incitement and stirring towards love and good works that takes place here, many are here for personal selfish reasons that lead to consumerism within the church. These individuals are gone without a single consideration of another person. Friends, in response to the gospel indications, what we've been saved out of and what we've been saved to, let us grow in our duty of continuing to assemble steadfastly and regularly throughout the week and to purposefully, intentionally consider those around us and pray the Holy Spirit to powerfully move and stir within us and them love and good works. As we sing in this song, a song about the mission of the church, let's repent wherever we've fallen short of a biblical description and prescription for what we're to look like. If there are people, places, and things that are regularly drawing us away from this regular gathering, Let's crucify it. Let's put it to death. If there's been a self-centeredness, consumeristic mentality that comes to church for me, 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 let's put to death ourselves and our flesh. Let's acknowledge our failure before the Lord. And let's allow His Spirit to just clothe us and breathe on us and empower us and incite us to loving one another and serving one another. We rejoice, Lord, to the extent that you've been faithfully working these things out in us and we repent to where we've fallen short of your glory. We receive your grace as we sing this song.